Hello and welcome to the Mystic Cast, where you join Jack Stafford and Deborah Littleboy, members of the Aetherius Society, the cosmic religion for the Aquarian Age, as we break down the barriers between religion, science, metaphysics, philosophy and mysticism, all of which are really only aspects of the self-same quest for truth. Please note this is an independent program not produced or fact-checked by the Aetherius Society. Today, our guest is Dr. John DeMartini. Hello, Dr. John. Hello, hello. Wonderful to see you on the show. And I Thank judge you. you on your boat. I am on my ship. I'm um, in the south part of the world right now in Antarctica. Wow. You get around on that thing. Yes, we, we, we do a bit of traveling. Maybe I should explain the concept to Deborah, who might not be familiar with it. Could you give a little rundown of the... Well, the ship is uh, a beautiful... Um, it's a yacht. It's a big yacht. There's a hundred of us that live on here. It's about 675 foot long and about 12 stories high and about 119 foot wide. And it's just, we go exploring and adventuring the world and we go from wherever water will allow us to go. <clears throat> right now we're in Antarctica. We're going to the Falkland Islands soon. Um, but we just move around, just go around the world. And I've been living here 22 years. Wow. There you go. I know you get tired of telling the story, but I wanted Deborah to hear it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So we're here to talk today about occultism and mysticism. And your work, I had you on my other podcast. I know you've done many interviews, you might not remember, but Pod Songs a while ago. And I wrote a song inspired by the conversation. And I wrote about I wrote it about the universal law of the one and the many. And it was a very inspiring interview about how the unit um from the one comes the many and from the many comes the one within the one is the potential for the many and within the many there is inherently the one in the subatomic world the astronomical world and anywhere in between including all of human behavior in the universe expanding out forming galaxies clusters that will contract back into the one on the earth in geology tectonic plates make a continent then disintegrate back into individuality in oceanology, equatorial heat rises and water, polar cool falls, uh, uh, circulating and redistributing resources. The more you force yourself to the many, the more nature forces you back to the one. Use this knowledge, understand nature's way, accept it and grow. And I thought that was almost a cosmic teaching. Well, <clears throat> I set out at age 18. Well, really at 17, I wanted to study the laws of the universe. The natural laws. At age 18, I came upon the idea of the Logos, which was a theological language for the reason, order, um, structure of the universe, you might say, intelligence of the universe. That Logos was splintered by specialists over the centuries into various ologies. And so I made a list of every known ology at the time by going to the dictionary and going to the encyclopedia, made a list of all the ologies alphabetized and decided that I would like to study all of them and read at least a hundred books in each topic, each of them, and devour that so I would have what would be equivalent of a PhD in those areas. And to try to find the thread, the common laws that applied in every one of those disciplines, quantum physics and 
quantum particles, Planck's dimensional physics, to astronomical, cosmological constructs <clears throat> with infinitudes. So whether we look at the micro or the macro, we go smaller or larger, that law of the one to many seems to hold true. Mm -hmm. In the quantum vacuum, for instance, we have out of the quantum vacuum emerge particles and antiparticles. And then they also submerge in very micro and picoseconds. They and so they go in from one to many and many into one. On the astronomical and cosmological, at least according to some of the theories, and we have a big bang you know, theory right now, and it's not a fact, it's just a theory, because we don't know all the facts, but it's an idea that we have a, a, from a point, we go outward and expand, but at the same time, we're having vast black holes contract and condense super galaxy clusters. Some believe it's recycled. Some people don't, but that one to many still applies on micro and macro. Hmm. In our own life, we see the same thing. If you're dating many, uh, you're looking for that special one. <laughs> so if you're dating the general many, you're trying to find that special one. And once you have the special one, your mind is easily distracted by the general many. Mm. So it reminds me of uh, Chat GPT. You know, you've read so many books. You're like you're like a large language model, in that you've devoured all this of human, all of human thinking, and you've condensed it down, and you come up with the uh, with the essence of it. Well, I've attempted to. I wouldn't say I have, but I've attempted to. Um, yeah, I I set out. I remember when I was eighteen years old, I read a book called The European Philosophers from. Descartes to, to Nietzsche to Descartes, I think it was, or Descartes to Nietzsche, pardon me. And uh, Descartes said, in, and Descartes said that he wanted to uh, be a man of letters, and he wanted to study many disciplines. And for some reason, I got tears in my eye when I read that. And I said, I said somehow I wanted to be intelligent. I, I didn't, I had learning problems as a child, and I was told I would never be able to read. But when I eventually discovered that I could at age 18, which is when I started reading, I wanted to catch up and I wanted to excel in that field. So to me, studying all the different ologies and disciplines was kind of a natural progression of wanting to find and build a body of knowledge that would stand the test of time. Because I believed, and this is simply a belief, that if a law applies, even though it may have a different term describing that law in micro or macro domains, that the probability of that law becomes more sustainable and more likely to be a real principle that we could build a foundation of life on. So that was the objective. Mm. And I believe that's, that's what's been emerging. I think that's what's happened. So I'm very grateful that I've been a neurotic reader. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, one of well, tens of thousands of books. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, a, I've been a devourer of literature now. It's a lot online, but you know, I, I, I used to just read literally 18 to 20 hours a day, and I just love learning. Mm. So I've been blessed by it. But what it does is it makes you more humble and more appreciative of a hidden order in the apparent chaos. Now, we have a model out there. Even in, in physics, we know that the maximum growth and development occurs at the border of order and chaos or order and disorder. And I believe that what we do is we... When we have missing information and we're not completely aware 
not fully aware, not fully conscious, if you will, we perceive disorder. And then when we ask a new set of questions, because the quality of our life is based on the quality of questions we're asking, if we ask a new set of questions and become conscious of unconscious information and become fully conscious for a moment, we see a hidden order in the chaos. We find the oneness in the, in the, the manyness all of a sudden. And we've induced from these parts, this whole, and out of that, we can then deduce from that whole and that repeated principle, the application to parts in different fields. And that has given me, I believe, a leverage and a lateral thinking that's been helpful to um, discern information. Because in, in almost every field, you have misinformation and bias and opinions that are polarized. And almost every, it's almost like there's a, as a higher ordered system between the various opinions, the proposition and the opposite proposition are like a dialectic being synthesized, as Hegel said, and it's trying to help us see a, a, an order and a balancing act that's going on, a symmetry, an elegant mm -hmm. symmetry that's inherent in nature. Mm -hmm. So I, I get inspired and get tears in my eyes every time I discover another, you know, magnificent piece of the cosmic puzzle. And so I just, that's what I do. That's what I love doing. Great. Well, that really ties in. That's a neat link because this is, this podcast is primarily for members of the Ethereum Society, which is a spiritual organization. It's actually the world's oldest international UFO organization and our master, Dr. King, because you're kind of on the edge of spirituality. I get the feeling you're kind of, I still have one foot in logic, but, um, you know, you can't take a step forward without well, I, imagination. I don't think, I don't think you have to separate the two. I really believe that true science, true science and true um, spirituality, if you will, they don't fight. It's the biased, uh, incomplete uh, hypothesis in each of those fields that conflict with each other. <laughs> For instance, if you, don't, if, uh, if you allow me to do this, let e economics, for instance, <clears throat> And that's classified by many to be some sort of material science, right? You're economic, it's axiological, and it's very grounded and mundane. And you, you do a service and you get paid for it. You have a transaction. But if you are exaggerating yourself and puffing yourself up in pride and self-righteousness and arrogance, and you project your values onto other people and expect them to live in your values, in this case, the customer or the employee or the stockholders, you get humbled by their response because they're going to give you a feedback to let you know that you're inauthentic. And so what's going to happen is no one's going to buy. No one's going to want to work without a Teamsters union and stockholders are going to start going somewhere else because they're not getting the returns. So that forces you to come down and get more great, grateful for your customer, grateful for your employees and grateful for your stockholders. If you minimize yourself, which is also inauthentic, and exaggerate them, and we've all done that in our business too, and sacrifice for the customer where there's no profits, sacrifice the employees where there's no order, sacrifice for the, the stockholders, we eventually have no profits maintained. So Minimizing ourselves or exaggerating ourselves are inauthentic expressions and personas and masks that we wear that create symptomatology in the economic markets as feedback to guide you back to authenticity. 
where the seer, the seeing, and the seen are the same, where there's equanimity within ourselves, which is spiritual, and equity between ourselves and others, which is spiritual, where there's no separation of self and other, which is primordial boundary of spirituality into existential world, and allows us to liberate ourselves from the infatuations and resentments of ourselves and others, which occupy space and time in our mind and keep us in the existential duality where we have this illusion that there's material separation. So spirituality and materiality in some respects can be completely entwined. And I believe that if you're fi following your most simultaneity state of mind, where you're seeing both sides of things symmetrically, simultaneously, and you're inspired um, and you're doing something that you really love, you can't wait to get up in the morning and do it, that's a service to people and people can't wait to get it. And you found your niche and you have sustainable fair exchange and equity and equanimity, then you're inspired and your demonstration and exemplification of spirituality in a material form. And so I, I think spirit without that's matter is expressionless. Matter without spirit is motionless. I love you. I truly love you. You've just you've just explained the law of contrast, which is exactly what I wanted to to what I wanted to the hear from contrast. you. You know, can I can I mention yeah. something about the law? If you take Wilhelm Wundt, who is a father of experimental psychology, about 130 years ago, did a little experiment. I'm just going to stand on your shoulders for a minute. <laughs> If you take a beaker of water that's got 40 degree temperature, Fahrenheit, and you take another beaker of water the same size, that's 72 degrees Fahrenheit, and another one that's 140 degrees Fahrenheit, and you put them there and you stick a thermometer in each one, three thermometers, you'll get an objective reading of 40, 72, and 140. And if you put your hand into that cold temperature, 40, and leave it there for a minute, and they, you, somebody asks you, what exactly do you think the temperature is? You'll probably estimate around 40 degrees. You'll be pretty close. If you take it out, let it go back to room temperature, and then stick it into the room temperature, you'll probably guess around 72 degrees. If you take it out, stick it in 140 degree temperature, you'll probably say around 140. It's pretty hot. And your reading will be quite objective. But if you take your hand and put it into the cold temperature, the water, and leave it there for a few moments and let your hand adapt to the cold. Then immediately take it out and stick it into the 72 degree water. You will subjectively bias by the law of contrast your interpretation of that temperature and probably say it's about 90 degrees. And if you take okay. your temperature and put your hand into the hot one, 140, and then take it out and put it in the temperature, you'll probably say it's about 50 degrees. So the second you contrast, and compare you to something other than you, you get subjective biased interpretations. And this law of contrast works for colors, it works for sound, it works for all the senses. All of our senses work by the law of contrast. So our sensory reality is subjectively biased and interpreted and opinionated. And then, you know, as you know, opinions are the cheapest commodities on earth. That which circulates the most usually has the least value. So what happens is when we go around and we put people on pedestals and judge them as superior to us and minimize ourselves as inferior or put them down and make them inferior, make us superior because of the law of contrast. If we put people on pedestals of pits, we will put them in our heart and then we will materialize our spiritual authenticity <clears throat> and we will distort and have a dysmorphic perspective on the reality of life. 
But if we are present and we understand the law of contrast and we ask questions, whatever I perceive in this individual, where do I have that? And I have reflective awareness and that there's nothing missing in me. I have all the things I judge in others within me. Who am I to judge and transcend the limitation of the judgment and not be infatuated or resentful or put people in muscles or pits, but put them in heart. Then all we have is a state of grace and our antagonist muscles and our agonist muscles work in a reciprocal inhibition and show graceful movement. Graceful movement was the source of grace, the term grace. The metaphysical grace came from graceful movement when there's no reciprocal inhibition distortion because of these subjective biases. So we physically get a manifestation of the grace state in our body as a way of giving us feedback that we're now in an authentic state and we're now being inspired by our life. And every symptom in our body, every symptom in our, our psychology, every symptom in our business, every symptom in our sociology, every symptom that goes on in our reality and perceptions is a feedback mechanism to try to help us on the spiritual path of authenticity. That really ties yeah. in with the teachings now, Deborah. Absolutely. Because what we, we're told, um, Dr. King told us that we have to, it doesn't, care, it doesn't matter what you like or what you dislike. Your likes and your dislikes, really, your petty are petty and serve you no purpose. You have to rise above them. And then he went on to teach us uh, what the energy called love actually is, not an emotion, not, you know, it's not, it's not a personality. It's an actually a clinical energy. And you know what? This robot, we can, we can bring it in and we can send it out. And when we do that with intention, on, not on like, on dislike, but on intention, on balance, and um, we can make a difference in the world. And that's what that's we it. do. And that's what that's, we're trained to do. You just said it perfectly. The moment you subordinate to somebody else, as Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. The moment you subordinate to somebody else and exaggerate them and minimize you, you'll inject their values into your life and try to live in other people's values, which is futile. And you'll get futility and feedback to let you know you're not being authentic. You're being trying to be second at being somebody else instead of authentic to being you. And you're fitting in instead of standing out. You can't make a difference fitting in. You can only make a difference standing out. The only standing out is the unique expression of your own hierarchy of values, which is unique to you like a fingerprint. When you're authentic, you're unique and you make the greatest difference. And not because you need to, not because of a judgment, but because you are. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, that really ties. I wanted to I wanted to talk about some some of the teachings of the society because you've read so many books and this one was channeled by Dr. King, uh, The Nine Freedoms. That was a very interesting book about uh, how we go through enlightenment, cosmic consciousness, ascension, and then interplanetary existence. Uh, um, it's kind of our soul, our evolution through this solar system. And I wanted to also mention one of the one of the transmissions that really could have come from you or something, somebody like you called the one energy, which is came from a very high master. And it talks about how there is only one energy in the system. So there is one energy radiating out and the same energy 
which holds a million worlds in the vastness of space, makes small man's heart beat. The same energy used by the divine essence becomes all that's manifested, makes the heart of small man beat. The, the, the energy which powers the sun through space is the same energy that inside us. And that, so the way that manifests is, um, you know, all many, oct this energy has many octaves of manifestation and, um, you know, for example, the, um, you know, nuclear, the, the sun, we are solidified sunlight, you know, carbon based life forms. So that energy has been digested by the sun and given us life. We give life to microbes. There is a one energy being constantly digested down into different frequencies. Um, does that resonate with you? Yeah, I don't think you can say it any, any more elegantly. When I was 23, I wrote a book called The Illusional Basis for Men's Health and Disease. It was on how perceptual illusions affect physiology. And in there, I have a page um, where every form of known uh, energy expression was mathematically compiled and cross-referenced um, so we could literally translate uh, one form of energy into another mathematically. And so there's this one energy that is expressed at different vibrational levels, you might say, because at the quantum level, it may be a very high frequency level, but uh, when it comes to some levels of thermodynamics, it may be a lower frequency. And we do have this one energy and it is conserved and it can be converted into information. It can convert it into heat. It can be converted into many different ways of expressing it. But all of it, some believe is intelligent. Now, this is a question that is debated on a panpsychic perspective, uh, but there may be some form of inherent level more fundamental than even space, time, energy, and matter that's maybe a vibrational system that's information-based. This is something to be proven or disproven. Right now there's beliefs. Um, there's, there's been hundreds of great scientists and great thinkers and minds that were along those lines and hundreds that didn't. But the reality is at the subatomic level, you know, when I first started studying biology, this is 50 plus years ago, um, they didn't really talk about the intelligence of a cell. They, saw, they thought of it as an intelligence of a human being and a, an advanced brain, and we were differentiated from the other species, and we were conscious, but these other ones weren't. That's become different today. Now the idea that trees are responding and they're highly organized and now it's single cells amoebas are highly organized is self-evident if you've studied any form of you know histology and cell biology and origins of life i wrote a big textbook on the origin of life there's no way you can go and probe into the deeper mysteries of the origin of life without being humbled i mean i've, I've sat with some very bright individuals they're professors in that field and uh they're humbled no PhD, no combination of PhDs, no Nobel Prize winners plus PhDs, no man or woman of letters could organize a single cell. The biochemistry is still more sophisticated than anything we know. But yet, we go along, this is the irony of it, we go along and we find a burin, an artifact that's maybe 2 million years old, out in the, you know, Kenya or something, and we say this little burin a simple little flint stone is a sign of intelligence, sign of some man mm -hmm. with some sort of homo hominid that's basically using the tools. We think that's a sign of intelligence. 
But that Buren is insignificant compared to the magnificent intricacy of the cellular biology of an amoeba. You know, just just coordinating that. So I always say that it's humbleness to this intelligence uh, is far more wise than arrogance um, to it, in my opinion, because you you're not you're not the top of the ladder. We, we still won't know how a single cell organizes it, and yet it does. And that's been going on before we were even evolved, according to the evolutionary model. So, you know, you kind of wonder, how did that come about? How did mm. that complex organization emerge? And is it passed on from one part of the solar system to another? Is this passed on? Is this something that's, you know, all over the universe? How far does this extend? I was involved in special missions uh, trying to be a special missions astronaut at NASA in 1987. And I was studying there, but I failed the test because I couldn't follow authority to individualize. But, uh, but our objective was to go and see if we could probe into finding life, not only at Mars, but exobiology in any place. And it looks like we're going to find microorganisms for sure. We, we definitely have microorganisms that are pretty, pretty likely. The idea that we're a sole habitat of intelligence is, if it is the only thing, it's that's outrageous. Um, but at the same time, if we if it's vastly more, then that's humbling, and that changes mm -hmm. our idea of spirituality and and materiality, for that matter. Yeah, I mean, you must have noticed or you're reading the inherent obsolescence in science how it's constantly being replaced and proved wrong and updated and and uh, yes. The cutting well, edge. Einstein, Einstein said, "Live with holy curiosity. Mm. Yeah. Live with holy curiosity. Whatever and you know." He, one of his quotes was, "It's enough for me on a daily basis to sit in awe, contemplating the intelligence that permeates the universe." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this dark matter and dark energy which they can't find, but uh, it comes from consciousness, according to the teachings of the Society. The galaxy is a conscious, living being. It's not that. The sun and the moon and the stars and the uh, so the earth, all the planets are here and clustered together. Therefore, they get there. Therefore, there is a galaxy. There, there is a galaxy, a conscious being, which therefore has given is giving life to all these lower life forms, as above as below. Because we, as in my gut, there is many little life forms who probably are not thanking me very much at the moment. But uh, you know, surely that. That rings well, true. The, micro, the microbiome or the agrobiome of the earth or the ocean biome or the solar system biome or the galaxy biome, whatever level you want to play it with, it's, it's probable. And, you know, some of the magnetic alignments of some of the stars inside just our Milky Way and some of the magnetic alignments of some of the galaxies in super galaxy clusters. Yeah. Uh, imply it doesn't guarantee but it implies some intelligent self-organizing systems you know when i first started studying uh thermodynamics at 18 i remember boltzmann said it's a probabilistic game and it's it's not the final answer and now recently uh you know stephen wolfram basically says it's computational boundaries of our awareness that's making us think there's disorder and what we call entropy so what we used to think is that there was overall in the universe entropy was ruling and there was going from order to disorder. 
And the only reason why we have life is because we're doing it at the expense of order somewhere else within the solar system or galaxy, et cetera. But then they found self-organizing solar systems, stars, self-organizing galaxies, self-organizing galaxy clusters, and self-organizing supergalaxy clusters. So the question is, is where is that coming from? So it, it, the model of entropy, which is death physics, uh, which is a tendency to go from order to disorder, is counterbalanced by life itself, which is a tendency to go from disorder to order. Mm -hmm. But what we do is we're not honoring the life that's present that we don't see with our senses in the phenomenological world that's present. And if we were to have a nominal view, as Emmanuel Kant would say, and access the awareness of that, we might see a universe that has a different comprehension of the order and disorder of the universe. And we may find that it's in perfect sync and perfect balance. And we may find that it's constantly remodeling itself. We might be living in an infinite universe with an infinite potential for transformation based on the tensions of the different levels of intelligence and it's constantly remodeling itself and we participating in. And whatever we own, instead of disown, uh, whatever computational level that we're capable of doing, we might participate and transform the universe in our own way. And we might have more power than we've acknowledged. I always say that uh, at the level of the soul, nothing's missing in us. At the level of the senses, things appear to be missing in us. The things that appear to be missing in us are the things we're too proud or too humble to admit that we see in others inside ourselves. Once we realize that the micro and the macro is all us, we then give ourselves permission to participate in the transformation on any scale. And this was the yoga cities. Yeah, the yogis, uh, they tell us that, uh, that we're holding up the evolution of the galaxy because it's a great being that can only evolve once all the beings of inside it have evolved. And uh, they say that also that what the metaph metaphysical student knows today, the, 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 um, the, the uh, physics student knows tomorrow. And the, the, multi, the multiverse, that we don't just live on a plate, but at each uh, the electromagnetic spectrum of which we can only see a very tiny part, is all that's manifested to us. But if you go to a different frequency of vibration, there is there is matter and energy at that frequency. And so that's also something to that hopefully physics will move in that direction of understanding. Well, many, many students um, that have been less discerning initially think that if you raise the vibration, you become more spiritual. If you lower the vibration, you become more material. That's a very common motif. But if you raise the vibration, you raise the spirit and matter. And if you lower the vibration, you densify the spirit and matter, or the intelligence and matter, if you will, or energy and matter, if you want to call it that. Well, we so, have this model of transmutation that was... Uh, it's all, the, it has all scales. Exactly. Yeah. It's all scales. Yeah. We spoke with... For, for all we know, we may be on all scales, and I have not been receptive and awakened enough to realize that we're all that well that also resonates with the teachings of uh, of the metaphysicians yeah that we exist on many realms at the same time is that right deborah I'm bringing you in <laughs> i'm not sure Keep up, deborah <laughs> no i'm i really i because that's i've gone back over that several times and i and that we, we have a teaching which which says it's the Four levels of creation, um, where we almost when we sort of have a, a another part of us on a on a higher vibrationary um, 
thing, which is like that the, I call her Big Deb because she's very smart. But little Deb, this is this is the bit you're seeing here, is a little bit ignorant and sticks a sticks a um a, a feet into her knees and won't listen. So um so we so we've got this there's definitely the two, but I I I can't I can't see in the teachers that we go very much more than four, but that could just be because I'm not able to comprehend or extrapolate that that out. Maybe it is there well, the for me to see or the difference between the essence of our being and the existence of our becoming is the speed in which we see both sides of a perceptual event. If we're able to see simultaneity of both sides, let's say we're infatuated with somebody and we put them on a pedestal and we're conscious of their upsides, but unconscious of their downside, or we resent somebody and we're conscious of their downside, unconscious of their upside, put them down in a pit. These people we put on pedestals or pits, when we put them on a pedestal, we're too humble to admit what we see in them is inside us. So we're disowning that part. We put them in the pit, not on the pedestal. We're too proud to admit what we see in them is inside us. We're disowning a part. And therefore we're blind and ignoring and unconscious or ignorant of those parts within ourselves and in them because they have the opposite side too. But if we simultaneously see both within them and ourselves and don't put them on pedestals or pits, but just realize that there's nothing but pure reflective awareness and there's a simultaneity of opposites and the idea of the opposites was an illusion of a separating mind based on a judgment of incomplete awareness. And then in actuality is there's just the one and it's simultaneity. Now you have the essence of being because there's existential differentiation between self and other to cause something to be extended in space and time. We're present. And that present state um, is very empowering. And we could call that the soul, the state of unconditional love. We could call that the divine spark as you might have it up there. And that's terminology. There's uh, the reason that, you know, the term, the divine spark um, goes back to Pythagoras and even goes back to a, a gentleman named Philolus, and then later Aristarchus. They're Greek philosophers, fifth, fourth, third century, that um, were involved in cosmology and, the, and basically the origin, just like Anaximander was the father of, of an, you know, astronomy. These were cosmologists, and they believed in a heliocentric system, and they believed that the earth went around a sun, but the sun went around a central fire. And the central fire, according to Pythagoras, projected and emanated out light in his emanational the central idea. Sun, yeah. yeah, yeah, the yeah. central sun, the central, the sparks were the light, the particles of light, the photons that were emanated from the central fire, the central sun, that gave and had expressions of life and animate life. The one energy. And so then, our soul was an emanation of that central light uh, as it entered into our solar system. You might say. And, um, and the mind was the furtherance of that same light. And then the, the mind divided itself up into duality. And, and it was an agent of the soul, as Maestro Eckhart says. And it goes down and experiences the existential world, the world of illusion, the Maya, the, the, the hmm. world of causality. Causality depends on a separation in space and time where you causality at the speed of light. The second you transcend causality into an a-causal synthesis and synchronicity of all compromise opposites, we have love. Return to the divine spark. Return to the source of being. 
the ground of being. And now you're now the essence of your being. And this state here, there's no judgment there. There's just the soul state of unconditional love, the acronym. And now we're present. Well, this is a good judge of the, the teachings also that we apply is when they can stand then they stack on top of the other older ancient teachings with taught through the Ethereum Society, the seven dimensions of creation, how the divine will imposes those conditions upon the mind as directed motion in a time frame of length, breadth, and height. So length, breadth, and height is 3D, but the yes. fourth dimension is, is time, right. because we're existing in a linear, at our state of consciousness, of time, that's directed by a motion of energy. We're in motion, though. I mean, the sun, the earth is spinning, the going around the sun, which is moving around the galaxy and the super galaxy cluster. So that's all motion. And that mind is holding it together. Uh, mind is the uh, universal static power. And then the divine will is that seventh dimension, which we all, as you say, we all exist in a, a sea of much. Science today acknowledges, uh, there's many articles, they're partly metaphysical, but there are many articles on the magnetism. They, they, no matter what scale they've looked now, magnetism exists. The largest scales of the universe down magnetism. Well, magnetism is polarity. So polarity is an intention, disintention, division of the mind in the existential world. Right. So if all of a sudden we're present and we don't differentiate and seek or avoid and differentiate attraction and repulsion, and there's no separation of space and time, it's the mind that adds space and time to the soul. The soul extracts out space and time from the mind. It's the mind that causes the existential illusions. The soul just loves, is present. So we're, we're, we're creating our own causal delusion based on the separations of ourself and other in the universe. That was the primordial boundary that caused the separation in our awareness. If all of a sudden we don't see a differentiation, as Erwin Schrodinger, the Nobel Prize winner, beautifully said in his book on the one mind in 1944 in his What Is Life book, he said, there's one mind. The rest of it's an illusion of the <laughs> incarnations of the mind. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch this interview back at a slower speed just so I can digest it all. But uh, yeah, this has been fantastic. And uh, yeah, you know, I really wish you could get hold of the nine freedoms and you read it and then you explain it back to me in another way because you're digesting knowledge and at a much higher rate than I am. And, uh, you know, we're so lucky to have these teachings. And um, yeah, I think someone well, like yourself would really. So somebody, somebody has probably done some homework in order to put that together and been present from the synthesis of all that. I, I remember, you know, there was a question about can an individual access wisdom of profound nature without doing a little inductive development? And this has been debated for a long time. Do we have pure induction, eventually creating deduction? Do we have deduction without induction? And uh, I haven't met anybody that has pure induction other than one boy who's a savant. He's the most ex clear example I've seen. Uh, I, I'd like to share a moment of him, if you could, his story. Please. Here's a boy that when he was in the womb, his mother had to have um, a kidney operation while he was she was pregnant. In the fourth month of fetal development, <clears throat> when the baby was born, they lived, both lived. And they weren't sure if they would both live, but they did. When the baby was born, they called the child uh, Amit, which meant unlimited learning in India. At eight months old, the child was being held by the mother and was a bit slow in developing. But 
was pointing to things. So she'd, wherever he would point, she'd walk towards. At first, she would just thought he was pointing randomly. But it turned out he was pointing to letters. <laughs> and so she would walk over to where he's pointing, and there'd be a letter there. And then the second she'd point to that, point to that letter, and she'd go up to it, and she'd recognize the letter, he'd change and point somewhere else and go to another letter. He was trying to spell. He was eight months old. <laughs> so she got this little laminated sheet, this piece of paper with lamination on it, with all the letters and numbers and punctuations on it, so he could just go right to it. And he started to communicating in faster and faster clips. It's, it's hard to read oh, what he's saying. Um, okay. Yeah. So he's communicating through a laminated sheet through letters and alphabets and numbers. And so at eight months old, he said, once he got this lamination, I'd like to meet with the doctor who did the surgery on your kidney. <laughs> Wow. So she took him to meet with the doctor and he communicated with this little handheld plastic device <laughs> with all the letters. And the doctor was dumbfounded because he was describing what it was like inside the womb when that was surgical procedure was going on. So this was incomprehensible to the doctor. They didn't understand. It's like, is this a joke? You know, but it was a description. By the time he was two and three and four, he was reading intense levels of reading. Uh, his father would go try to buy books for him, and he'd have them read before they got checkout at the checkout counter. <laughs> um, he's now 21 years old. He's about 15,000 books in. And uh, he does consulting for corporations and executives. He's 21 years old. He's one of the more advanced students I have in my my curriculum. And... Um, Absolutely brilliant, loving individual with amazing awareness, truly amazing awareness. I, I teach classes on all kinds of topics from astrophysics and cosmology down to subatomics, and he's right there. He keeps up with it. I took him to the Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton, where Freeman Dyson, before he passed away a few years ago, was living. And um, there was a Hungarian cosmology text sitting there on the table. He went over there and sped read this thing in four minutes. And then we had a discussion, a three-way discussion between Freeman Dyson, who was the one that took over Albert Einstein's position at the Institute of Advanced Studies, uh, and had a conversation, a three-way conversation with him and this young boy, Ahmet, and myself, and filmed this thing. Um, it was amazing, the depth of this young, at that time, nine-year-old boy. And so, <laughs> I, I, you know, is this induction? Is this because he learned and he studied? Or was this something that occurred very early at eight months old? He was already knowing how to spell and, and comprehend things. I well, you must believe in reincarnation, though. I mean, that was that's an obvious case for reincarnation. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I can't prove that. I, I, I may believe in it. I believe there's a consciousness that's, a, that's conserved. All information is conserved in physics. But I, I can't prove that that's what that is. I could we could we say well both those parents are doctors they read to him in the womb I mean there's all kind of other things that could be leading to this but the probability is extraordinary to conclude that it's only reading from the outside there had to be some uh, as Immanuel Kant said an intrinsic a priori knowledge of certain things like we have language for and so I think this child had some sort of a carriance from awareness maybe it is reincarnation. 
I would like to believe that, but I, I can't prove it. Let's put it that way. I can believe it. Do you it. notice in yourself? Can you discern your higher self and your lower self? Do you, do you notice that through the day? Or? Well, my girlfriend usually points it out. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> your lower self. She'll quickly point that out. Welcome. I, I, I know no, when, when I'm present and in a state of grace, um, you know, it's present. I don't think anybody would differentiate that. When I'm not, it's pretty obvious. Mm. I'm in some sort of delusion. And I, I think I spend more of my time in delusion than I do in a state of grace. But, but I do have, you know, cosmic <laughs> consciousness. Richard M. Book in 1901 uh, from London, Ontario, wrote a beautiful book called Cosmic Consciousness. He took 43 of the most illuminated people in history and looked at what was common to them and how often were they conscious, you know, really aware. And he, he concluded that it's a, not something that's on nonstop. It's something that comes and goes. Sometimes we're tuned in, sometimes we're not. But these were the most illuminated people that he found in the history and, and studied their lives and summarized their teachings and their lives pretty well. It's a beautiful book. Hmm. But um, I, I certainly can't claim to be anything other than a gentleman who's been doing my homework, trying to learn and have moments of inspiration and potential grace. And I, I have that. And in that moment, I have no desire to change me or others. I see the order and there's just, thank you. I love you, life. Well, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. It's been a really illuminating conversation. I hope you do get the book. It goes through cosmic consciousness, enlightenment, then ascension, which is uh, ascension is a long way away for for most of us. But hopefully, maybe a glimpse of cosmic consciousness is not is not beyond belief. So, where can people follow learn more about you, Doctor John? Um, they just go to drdmartini.com. Okay, and uh, if they if they go there, they can do a free complimentary value determination process to determine what they're, what they are, their life is demonstrating they're really interested in and not what they think it is. Cause most people are not realizing that what they really are inspired to do doesn't always match what they fantasize and they can just go and browse on that and keep busy. You're going to have to believe in reincarnation just to be able to go through my whole website. Cause it's going to take you more than one life. Bingo. That's a good one. All right. Thank you. And people can learn more about the Ethereum society at ethereus.org. Thank you. Thank you.